It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. There were roughly 18,000 Protestant pastors in Germany when Hitler came into power in 1933. Out of those 18,000 pastors, only 3,000 of them stood up against the tide of evil. 12,000 of these pastors did absolutely nothing to stop Hitler. Hey, this is Eric. Before we venture into today's Daily Thunder message and explore the strange cultural silencing superpowers of political correctness, I wanted to mention that though a couple of our upcoming week-long trainings have already reached capacity, we have added two additional week-long intensive trainings to our Ellerslie calendar— one in the late summer and one in the late fall, to help facilitate this enthusiastic interest in discipleship training this year. For those of you that are unable to sneak away for our five-week training, these powerhouse one-weekers have been designed with you in mind. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's enter the German culture prior to World War II. Let's walk its streets, meet its people, and understand its thinking. What would cause a nation to do nothing and say nothing when in 1942 extermination camps are built to mercilessly eradicate their Jewish neighbors? Let's find out what was behind this eerie silence. Uh, I'm in part 45, which is, can you believe I'm on part 45 uh, of a series that seems to go on and on and on. In fact, I could, when I first started, I mapped out like 20 some uh, sessions, and I remember thinking, ah, will I actually do this though? May, you know, maybe I'll shrink it down to like ten, and it'll be a sort of a. And then it just keeps growing instead. And you know, when you have something like an actual historical event that you, but it's not just an event; it's like a series of events that cover, uh, you know, five and a half years. It's a, it's a long stretch of time, and it's all over the world. So literally, I could probably do this for the next 10 years and not run out of material. <laughs> and that's not an exaggeration, and pro- probably even beyond that. There is so much girth and depth to World War II, and every nook and cranny that I poke at, I am moved. I, it's like because my lens that I'm approaching it with is to say, God, teach me. Instruct me as if I am the church of Jesus Christ, and I want to be sanctified, I desire to understand your ways and your truth. Show me, in and through these events, how you work, how your truth applies. And so I'm seeing triumph, and I'm seeing godly character shine, and then I'm seeing the exact opposite, where I'm seeing evil at its most grotesque. And that's part of the challenge I'm walking through right now. If you remember Friday's uh, Daily Thunder message, which was called The Fourth Roll, I said in Nazi Germany, in and through the years 1933 through 1945, which is going to be this window of time of proving of the Church of Jesus Christ in Germany. And every time I get close to this topic, which I've covered it multiple times in the past, uh, you know, in various sermons and even in this series, I've, I've hinted at it, but uh, it's going to be a proving time. And it's very difficult, actually, for me personally. I woke up this morning early. And I had, uh, I don't want to, want to say almost like I'm haunted by something, but there, there's a story I have in the past. There's a video that came out called Depraved Indifference. And Depraved Indifference is, uh, the, even the idea of Depraved Indifference, if you were to see someone drowning and do nothing, it's actually in American history a charge of murder. 
because you have the capacity to help someone and because of your neglect for life and the value of life, you're actually culpable of murder. And so this idea of depraved indifference and even that message or that, that short video came out of a conversation I had with a missionary in Liberia. And I was on the phone with this missionary in Liberia and she, she was just in agony. And she said, Eric, I, we have so much need down here and we don't have the hands and the feet. We can't actually facilitate it. We came down and we got a children's home and we figured we could pack in maybe 18. Well, at the end of the first week, we had 27. And we have no room, we have so much need around us, but we don't have the time and the manpower to actually address it. I mean, I was walking down the road and there was a, a five-year-old boy or four-year-old boy, I forgot which, what the age was, on the side of the road and he has no parents, he has no food and he's just dying there. And I don't even know how to help him because I don't have any more capacity. And I remember having the thought, oh, that's terrible. And I was grieved by it, even as I heard it, which is the good response, right? I should be grieved. However, what disturbed me and why this became such a significant thing in my life is that after that phone call, though I was grieved, I went back to my normal life and as if I hadn't ever heard it. In other words, it didn't change me. It just was disturbing. And it was a disturbing moment in my day. Well, to reflect upon something like that is horrible. And then that night, I was in, in the middle of the night, I, I woke up, and this is why I'm creating the parallel with this morning. I wake up, and I have this little five-year-old boy on the side of the road in my mind. And the thought that's in my head is, what if that were Hudson, who was the exact same age? I, I can't remember if it was four or five. Do you guys remember if it was, was it four? Okay. So this four-year-old boy is on the side of the road, and now I'm I'm seeing him. Like, I, I have this mental picture of a four-year-old boy, and it's, what if that were Hudson? And it's interesting. When it is personalized, it changes the dynamic of data out there. 1942 means very little to most of us, just in a normal sense. It's like, oh, that's, that's interesting that that happened in history. However, if we are transported back to 1942, and it is our family that is wearing a yellow star and being taken out into the streets and stripped naked and brought into a ditch and we are with our children in such a circumstance and we're as parents concerned not even just with our own life which is a, a distraction enough but with our kids it changes there's a dynamic shift in it when it's you and your kids and if it's just me just me, Eric Ludy, you know, it's funny how you chew on thoughts like that. Like, God, okay, here's how I would respond to it. But it's weird. When you start involving your family, the vulnerability and the sense of vulnerability is there, which is why you can see why German Christians are going to cower and why they're going to pull back. And so on Friday, I mentioned that in Germany there were three key roles that everyone sort of fell into. If you were to divide it up and just say, okay, let's take the demographics of all of uh, the German people and say, okay, you have the murderers or the bad guys, the ones that are actually gonna follow Hitler and perpetrate evil, okay, that, that's over here. Then you have this other group, which is a fairly large group, which is going to have atrocities committed against them. The Jews are just one of that group, okay? And, but they're, it's, so they're the victims. And then, so you divide that group over here. And then you have this other group, which are the bystanders which is actually a huge percentage of German society, will do nothing. And 
to be honest, I understand why they're going to do nothing. That's, that's part of what I'm studying right now is, and you look at my, my message title, Behind the Silence. What is behind the silence? Why, how could someone remain silent in a time like this? It's very easy for us to look back from all these years later and cluck our tongues and say, can you believe that? I would never have done that. That's the same thing we think about Noah's day too. I would have gotten on the ark. And we're, we're, we all are so virtuous in our thoughts of ourselves. It's like Ray Comfort comes up to everyone on the streets of uh, California uh, and says, are you a good person? And every single one of them says they're a good person. And yet when we're matched up against even a simple test of the law of God, we all are shown as fraudulent. We all have a problem. And cowardice is part of the package. In other words, for us, we all need a remedy. We can study history, but what it exposes to us is that there is a problem with humanity and a great vulnerability. And so what's interesting is when you study history and you see these lights that shine, and that's one of the things that throughout Christian history I've been moved by, and that's why I love to read Christian biography, is I want to study those lights. What makes that person different? Okay, I recognize that there's a whole bunch of darkness over here, but I, I'm interested in that light. And that's what's inter interesting about the Holocaust. I actually do not want to study the Holocaust, to be honest with you. I don't want to study atrocities. I have no interest in what the devil's devilishness is. I don't like thinking about what the devil's doing. It's not my interest. My interest is the light. Light shining in darkness, that's my study. That's my interest. But when you get to Nazi Germany, you don't have a lot of that. You don't have a lot of light. You have a lot of darkness. And you have to scour to find light in the midst of this. And, but th it's there. And it's profound. And it's beautiful. And that's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to the Ten Boom story, which I mentioned on Friday. But Casper Ten Boom and his daughters, Corey and Betsy, and their acts of kindness towards the Jews and their willingness to hide the Jews in their house and their willingness to participate in this sort of underground network of rescue is inspiring to me. But that's Holland. These are people that were dispositioned to dislike the Nazis from the beginning, right? Because they're coming in and taking their territories. Like, excuse me, you don't belong here. However, a German has a nationalistic pride that's deeply embedded in them. And so part of their you could even call it this, their Christianity is connected with their patriotism and how loyal they are. They're, they're very respectful of authority. Authority is a huge deal in Germany. They are a very orderly society. And so to maintain order, you show submission and respect. And every young child is trained in these virtues. However, there were some virtues that were left out <laughs> in the process. In other words, when certain virtues are heightened or hyperbolized and others are mm, uh, deperbolized, I just made up a word, but whatever would be the opposite, the inverse of that, you see the German vulnerabilities. And so I want to go behind the silence and just sort of explore some of the, the ideas of, because I've been, I, I woke up this morning early with pictures in my head. It was, it was actually a rather difficult thing, but I, I was praying. I was like, God, 
how do I show Christ in these circumstances? What would I do? God, what should I do? I mean, that's, I felt paralyzed. Even in my you know, early morning hours when I was laying in bed, I was like, God, I don't know what to do. I know what truth is. I know what love looks like. But when you are facing men with guns and you don't have one and you're just a single life, what do you do? How do you stand up and go, that's wrong, and then you get shot too. What good did you accomplish? And that's the, the thought processes that go through, well, at least I stood up, right? Which is actually still gonna be my conclusion. It's still better to stand up and say something and die than to say nothing and live. And so let's just walk through this. It's, it's, I don't know how this is going to unfold. This is actually one of the hardest messages I've put together, even uh, oh, what was it, about 15 minutes before I was supposed to be done with my message this morning and go into a time of discussion and prayer with Leslie, uh, I had nothing in my keynote. And I have a lot of thoughts. I've been studying a lot, but I have, I don't, it's like, God, I don't know what to say. So I have no idea what's gonna come out here. That's an appropriate title, Behind the Silence. I should just get up here and be silent. It's like, okay, guys, you get the point? This is hard. Uh, there's some, something behind this silence, and that is I'm in agony right now. Uh, I've shared this story multiple times uh, over the years, but the story of the German pipe organ. And I'm basically putting dates behind this, 1933 to 1945. It's the reign of Hitler. And this is symbolic. You have these Jews that are being carted away on a train in cattle cars, and there's slats where they can see out, and they're being carted off to their death. They know it. The legendary stories of the extermination camps are, have passed along to all of the Jewish ghettos. They're very familiar with what happens when they're taken. And what's interesting is very rarely will the Jews fight anymore. Come 1942, you could come into a city and take 5,000 of them, round them up, and they will not fight. They'll just go to their death silent unto slaughter. It's really weird because they've been fighting for so long. It's actually better for them just to die. That's how sad this whole state of affairs is. So we have this cattle car full of Jews and they see a church and the church is alive. And I don't know if it's a Sunday morning, Sunday night. I don't know, I don't know what day it was. I don't know what time of day it was. It was just there were people in there and they were singing. The pipe organ is uh, tooting away and they begin to shout and yell for someone in that church to wake up and do something for them. Because in the Jewish mind, even though they disagree with Christianity, it is an affront to their understanding of Judaism, they do know that a Christian of all people should respond. They should, on paper. I mean, just or in the text of Scripture, they, there should be a response. So they are screaming out, crying out as they're passing this church. And inside the church, in the midst of their worship and their singing, they turn up the volume of the pipe organ to drown out the screaming of the Jews. That's a story that symbolizes something. And I think it's important for every one of us not to just look back and say, oh, I can't believe they did that, but to recognize that oftentimes our hands can be on the pipe organ volume too. Now, the pipe organ volumes might have been a little different than a knob, but we have our hand on a knob and there are noises we can create and uh, cater, have, cater to our soul to drown out the things that are on God's heart today. And so there's a sensitivity in me 
not to quickly just look back at the German church and sneer, even though I am not impressed. I just want God to touch Eric Ludi first and to make sure that all my volumes are down and I'm hearing what God is saying to the church. The eerie mechanics of silence. It's made up of two key fears, is the way I could say it. One is the fear of practical reprisals. Loss of things, comfort, and ease. I, I use the illustration, I don't know if we, this was yesterday at church, but I, I'm disturbed personally by what's happening to the police, okay, and, and the diminishment of uh, respect of, of our authority. To go from having these policemen that used to come into schools and it's like, hey, children, listen to the policeman talk to you. He's one of our community heroes. To suddenly, yes, let's, uh, let's get rid of all policemen. Let's mock them. Let's destroy them. Let's sneer at them. Let's spit upon them. What, what has happened? It's interesting because I have two uh, parents in here with uh, sons. One's a son-in-law. One's a son that have uh, policemen, so uh, quite the audience I'm speaking to here. But so let, let's follow through on this logic here that if Eric is disturbed by that, okay, that, that's real and it's good that I am, right? Most of us, well, every one of us in here would agree it's good that Eric's disturbed by that. Any snubbing of authority is dangerous. There's dangerous uh, directions that that can go. And so if I put a bumper sticker on my car that says, you know, uh, Ludi backs the blue. Okay, it's going to be a really cool, like a, one I make and print out and stick on there. There's reasons why I would hesitate to do that. What is it? It's a fear of a reprisal because, hey, I like my car and I like its paint job. I don't want someone to key my car or someone to bash in my front window when I'm in shopping in a store because we all know that that could happen. Whether or not that's likely to happen in Windsor, Colorado, it's still, it's something that causes a pause. You see, it's, a, it's part of the eerie mechanics of silence. You see, when we recognize that there could be reprisals against us, we hesitate. And as a result, if we cultivate that and allow our, our life to be ruled by that fear of reprisal, well, we will do nothing. We will be silent when we should speak. The second is social backlash. And I would say that these two have different weights in each of our souls. Some of us are extremely moved by what people think about us. And this is a big one for a lot of people. It's the loss of reputation and the esteem of society. You see, if you were to do this one thing, then people will think lower thoughts about you. It's very interesting, this whole mask-wearing dynamic that we are in. That there is a certain public pressure that is very World War II Germany-esque, okay? If you study Germany, you're going to see it, and it's like stands off the page at you when, you when you have, where you can feel it, where people will actually look and sneer at you if you don't have a mask on. They will. There's like a contempt, like, oh, you're part of the problem. And it's a weird dynamic that is social. And this is exactly what happened in Germany back in 1933 through 1945. It was a reputational thing. It was a standing in society. Who are you with? Are you with the in crowd or are you with the out crowd? The Jews were with the out crowd and if you behave in any regard, show any sensitivity to a Jew, you're out. You will be treated with the Jews. 
So I'm going to give you just a couple stories, and I, I originally wanted to read these stories to you, but it's a little complex uh, to do that, and it would probably take up too much time. But the story of Mr. Stalker, I don't know exactly how to make that umlaut O sound. Uh, if, if Dwight was here, he could help me with that. But uh, his, his first name is Adolf, which is why you see me just calling him Mr. <laughs> because that would be misleading to you. This guy's the opposite of uh, Adolf Hitler. But his name is Adolf. That was a common name uh, back then. I don't know that it's a common name in Germany anymore. <laughs> I think Adolf Hitler sort of ruined the name. But this man is oh, somewhere around like mid-60s, uh, maybe even closing on, on 70s. He's one of the esteemed, venerable businessmen of this one little part of Germany. And he is one of the wealthiest men in town. He's sort of like an aristocrat amongst uh, the people. Everyone reveres him. I'm not saying he's a kind man. I'm just saying he's a venerable man. He is highly respected. He has a mind of his own. He's a leader in the community. Hitler takes over. And this man is very opposite of Hitler and dis disdains Hitler's uh, politics. And so this lower level man that he's never really gotten along with in the town, that's just, you know, not that uh, impressive, not that high a character, now suddenly immediately is put above everyone in the community because he's a little Hitler. And so since he has stood by Hitler all along, now suddenly he's in charge of everything. So they have... Uh, there's something called the plebiscite, which is a, a vote of confidence, a vote uh, to establish a, a key idea. And Hitler is basically wanting to establish his reign and control over the German society. So he calls a vote. And up to this time in German history, there had always been private booths, election booths. Oh, and there still are. However, there's a table set up in every election uh, location where this, the little Hitlers will sit and they have everyone's name of the community down and it's very clear to everyone in the community that if they don't vote, that will be a signal to the, uh, to the Nazis and if they do vote, who they vote for. So are you with Hitler or not? You know that Hitler is going to get 96 plus percent of the vote in Germany. Which is why most of us from the outside looking in say, they chose him. And yet if you talk to a Jew, they'd say, we didn't choose him. We didn't want him. We were forced to vote for him. So Mr. Stalker, Adolf Stalker, Stoker, I don't know that I'm pronouncing it correctly, is going to show up at the voting uh, precinct He's going to see the setup, and everyone's waiting in line because no one goes into the private booths. No one. And so he's going to sneer at this little Hitler, and he's going to take off his hat and walk into the voting booth, do his thing, come out, put his hat back on, give a little sneer towards the little Hitler, and walk out. Out of the vote that day in that entire town, that entire community, it was, I, I wish I had the numbers, but there was only one vote against Hitler. One. And everyone in the town knew who gave it. So, so much for a private election or private ballot box, right? And so that night, there's a long line. This is in 1933. So this is a long time. This is right when Hitler was coming into power. There's a long line of men with torches walking up the high hill to his estate at the top of the hill, which overlooked this, this town and had a beautiful view. And he had boarded up his windows. He had a hunch that something was going to happen. And they are calling out on the outside with the big loudspeaker, what should we do with uh, 
Aristocker. And basically over and over and over again, they, the crowd was yelling, hang him, hang him, hang him, hang him. In the crowd were his two sons. They were forced to, lest they get hung too, participate in actually crying out for the hanging of their father. This is the start. You can feel it. This is 1933. You start to get to 1942. We have a deeply baked in notion of who are you siding with? Because if you are going to pull an Erstocker, you do know what's going to happen to you. Now, he wasn't hung. He was actually thrown into prison for six months. And yet he was basically blackballed from society from that point forward. I don't know the continuing saga of this man's life. But that was back in 1933. So uh, Herman Fritz Grebe is going to say this about our thought in America about free elections. He said, there were, these were not free elections. It makes me so mad, so bitter to hear people say that the German people wanted Hitler and got what they deserved. Americans say to me, you voted for him. Yes, we voted for him, but we didn't have a choice. That's a hard one for us as Christians. Like, what do you mean you didn't have a choice? You could have done what Erd Stalker did. Yeah, and everyone looks back at you and goes, yeah, we could have. <laughs> but what good would that do is exactly what the mindset is. What good would it have done? to defy the system and go into that ballot box and be the second vote. And there's two guys that walked into the ballot box and privately cast their vote against Hitler. You feel it? This is, this is the culture. This is the mechanics, the eerie mechanics of silence. This is what's behind it. It's malevolent and it's dangerous. So the imprisonment of Mr. Grebe... April 1934, so about a year later, I'm just giving you a couple stories just to give the tone of understanding what's happening at the very beginning of this. So I'm giving this window of the testing of the Church of Jesus Christ in Germany, 1933 through 1945. World War II is gonna end in 1945. Uh, what, what is it, April 30th or so that Hitler is going to die, and boom, everything is gonna shift in uh, Germany from that point forward. But up to that point, we have issues. So there's a, uh, a Jewish man, a Jewish businessman that uh, Mr. Grebe, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, but he's sort of the hero of our story. I, I'm currently going through a book called uh, The Moses of Rovno, and it's about his life and his deeds. He's one of the lights that's shown. Very moved by this, this man's life and decisions. And so, but in the beginning, he didn't understand the dynamics. He's learning them, okay? Because he's a just man and he has high integrity and high character and he doesn't like the fact that this man that he's, in, that he's worked and done business with, who's one of his suppliers, he's an engineer, a builder, is, is going through this treatment because basically the Jews, or the Jews, the Germans are forcing him to sell his business to the Nazi party. And this guy's been in business for, for years and so they ask him to write out the costs. They're only going to pay costs. They're not going to pay anything beyond of everything he has, and they'll buy it from him. And then uh, Mr. Grabe is going to find out that this Mr. Kirschbaum, I think was his name, instead of receiving 800,000 Reichmarks or whatever the, 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 the money, monetary uh, form was, he received one-tenth of that, 80,000. And... So Mr. Grabe is just like incensed over this. How dare they? This is his government that is cheating one of its citizens. 
And so he gets called to a, a gathering of around a thousand businessmen, and he's in there, and they're, they're talking about their policies of how they are handling the, the Jewish situation. They're buying out these businesses. They're paying fair value, and they're paying exactly what they're supposed to. So then he makes the mistake of basically raising his hand and questioning, saying, you know, I have a circumstance you know, with a Mr. Kirschbaum that he submitted an invoice for 800000 and you paid him 80000 This is in front of everyone. So you could just imagine how they felt about this. And they said, well, you can't trust a Jew. They will always overstate. So we were just giving him what was fair. And uh, so afterward, the SS follows him down the streets, and he never made it home that night. He was arrested. This is just a, a German guy, not a Jew, but he was willing, he was stupid enough, if you could say it, to actually speak on behalf of what was true and to call into question what they were saying, basically saying, are we sure that this is true? And he spent multiple months in prison because he asked a question. So you get the, the vibe. Is it clear to all of us, if we're in Germany right now, that if you do anything, like right now it's just a lot easier to wear a mask than to not. You may not care about wearing a mask personally, but you know what? Dealing with the sneers and the snide remarks, you know what? I, I'd prefer to go without it. So you, as a result, you wear a mask. Does that make sense when you go out? Now, some people, they're genuinely concerned about COVID-19, and that's fine. However, if you're not, it's a very interesting dynamic that is created in sort of the mask culture that we suddenly have. And it's, it hints at something that we need to be watchful of. John 9, 19 through 23, you're going to see this same dynamic taking place back in early Christianity. Jesus is going to come on the scene, and he's truth. However, to side with the truth, to acknowledge that he's truth, actually will cost you. And so as a result, there's a public pressure to not acknowledge him as truth. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? So there's this blind man that has been healed. He was born blind, and his parents know that, so his parents are brought in as witnesses. And so they're being asked if this is their son, and was he born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. You know, and that, it's perfectly fine answer, except for the fact that the parents do know who healed him. And I'll show you that in the next few sentences here. You see, the parents do know that Jesus healed their son. However, they do not want to confess that Jesus healed their son because there will be a public penalty if they do. So the truth is out there. They know the truth, but they refuse to speak the truth, even though Jesus has just healed their son. They have, they're reserved. They have the same eerie mechanics going on inside of them of silence. So his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. It's ironic, here I am talking about the Jews in one story being the victims, and this one, they're, they're the ones that are sort of functioning in the, uh, in the wrong position. Uh, and so you see these dynamics. We have them in every culture at a certain level. There's a social conformity. There's a pattern of this world that we are supposed to be moved into. Every culture has this dynamic. 
And so as a result, as Christians, we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. So there's a key difference that's supposed to take place inside of us as Christians in the midst of these times. Out of 18,000 Protestant German pastors in 1934, 3,000 of them strongly sided with Hitler. Now, just that right there is a very, very sad statement because Hitler is demonic. (laughs) There's nothing godly about this man. And yet, if you side with Hitler, it is going to advance your ministry light years. You're going to get ground. You're going to get authority. You're going to get territory. You're going to get privileges. You have to side with Hitler, though which means you have to overlook a lot of evil. And 3,000 of the 18,000 Protestant pastors will do exactly that. 3,000 will vehemently oppose Hitler. 12,000 sat neutral, unwilling to take a side, unwilling to say anything for or against, unwilling to confess. That's a big number. And that's the zone, I, I, I think I said this the other day, I don't think most of us are vulnerable to siding with Hitler. That's not the way we would probably be bent, but we are vulnerable to being part of the 12,000 silent ones. And that's where I want to see the Spirit of God move us into the 3,000, which will be known as the confessing church. The church of Jesus Christ must rise up in a time of darkness. It must rise up and testify of the light. So there's a clear commission. Let me just sort of walk through this in the New Testament. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. That's Matthew 10.1. And then in Matthew 10.5, these 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus said to them, and this is Matthew 10.16-17, through 17, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men. For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. This is the platform of Christianity right here. I mean, right there. And we, we, for some reason, over time have felt like, well, that was them, but I don't need to expect the same. And yet it says that they are going to be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, they must be wise as serpents. They must understand and be circumspect of the world in which they live, Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Here we are, Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, that's encouraging. Thank you, Jesus, for that wonderful encouragement. How many of us stick that on our refrigerator? Listen to this. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And it's like, let's meditate on that. And yet, it's truth. If you live the Christian life, there is a sector of society that will despise you and desire you dead. Depending on the system of government at the time and the health of that government will depend on if you are protected from that angst and from that anger and that venom, which in America is real. It is there. There are people that want the church destroyed right now in this country. Can you believe that? And yet it's true. However, there is a system of law in place which restrains them from perpetrating. However, as that law erodes away, you will see an increase of violence against that which is righteous. It's always been the case. 
And so as a result, for us as believers, we should not be shocked by these facts. We should be prepared. Prepared to thrive in the midst of difficulty. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And then Matthew 10, 26, do not fear them. Isn't that an interesting thing to add in? It's like, yeah, you're going to be sheep among wolves. Yeah, you'll be hated for my name's sake. But don't, don't fear that. Don't fear what these men will do. Well, easier said than done, Jesus. I mean, that sounds really good on paper there, but how do you not fear? And this is Matthew 10, 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Um, Jesus, that doesn't sound very wise. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm hearing it in you know, secret here. I'm not just going to go out and blab it. Because you know what could happen to me? He seems to know what will happen to us. Here's Matthew 10, 31. Do not fear. And then Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. That's Matthew 10, 37 through 40. And then finally, Matthew 10, 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So that's just one passage of Scripture with Jesus giving us a very clear commission. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, your life is hanging in the balance. But here's how you live in the midst of it. We can see that, but I don't know if you feel the weakness. And that's part of what I've been trying to put my finger on. I, in Eric, there's a great boldness. There's like a roar of a lion. There is. And it comes out. I preach and I get loud. But there's also a human that is vulnerable to cowardice, that is vulnerable to thinking about my welfare and my family's welfare, and I don't want to be dumb. I understand exactly when I read these stories, it's like, yep, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm not supposed to say right now. I know how I'm supposed to behave right now. I know what the political correct line is. However, I don't follow the culture, I follow Christ. And if you follow Christ at a time like this, it can get a little dicey. The principle of boldness. Men can develop psychological boldness to face physical and emotional tests. Did you know that you can develop a certain degree of boldness? You don't need Christ to do it. In, uh, I was reading, what was it, Lords of the Earth, and they were, how they trained their young boys uh, to be fearless in battle and to not fear incoming spears being thrown at your face. Okay, could you imagine? So, I don't know, a six-year-old boy, they, part of their grooming into manhood is they'll take all the men in the village and put them up against a wall and they'll all hold their spears and that little boy has to stand there and they will throw spears at his head and miss because they're very good. But that's how they're training a young boy to be fearless. Gulp. 
Okay, so, and it works, by the way, it works. There are certain things that we can psychologically and practically do to cultivate a certain form of fearlessness, a certain form of boldness. And that's all well and good, but it does not work in spiritual matters. When spiritual things come into the ascendance, light against darkness, you could know what is true, but you will find that if you don't have spiritual impetus and power, you will cower. It has nothing to do with how many spears were thrown at your head when you were young. It will still fail you because this is a spiritual test, and for spiritual tests, you need spiritual muscle. To get spiritual muscle, you can't dig into your own war chest personally. You need to go to God's. To actually do what we are talking about, you must have something outside of yourself. So listen, but outside of divine impartation, men are unable to develop spiritual boldness to face spiritual tests. Spiritual boldness, right there. I could have named this one spiritual boldness because that's ultimately what this is about. Behind the silence is a missing feature. The power of the Holy Spirit in boldness. You could have doctrine, but if you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and you are not ready to agree with his movements, you will fail in the day of testing. But... Let's turn the tables on that. Let's get excited as Christians to recognize that we have been given everything we need. So there's a couple things that are important to recognize. First is, as a Christian, if we have failed in the past to stand when we were supposed to stand, there is still hope. That's one of the wonderful things about the gospel, that at every juncture of forward movement, we can repent of previous wrong movements so that we can make right what is wrong and the, the living God will actually take what the enemy meant for evil in our life and actually convert it. And so even though, yes, what we did was wrong, today we can start doing what is right. Isn't that an amazing thought? And so as a result, anytime you hear a Christian message, there's always hope because the Spirit of God will convict. He doesn't condemn. Con- condemnation leaves no opportunity. Conviction is always has hope and love and mercy built into it. The reason God is even convicting us is so that we can awaken. We can stand up straight. We can live differently. So the second piece is not just that there's hope, but the second part of that is there is power. There is power to live the way that we esteem right now to live, but feel incapable of doing We all feel when we start studying the Holocaust and we start talking about the lights that are not very common in Nazi Germany, we feel very vulnerable to being one that doesn't shine. And I don't like that either, okay? That bothers me. I want to be prepared. I want my family to be prepared to shine. So what is that? Bold action demands the impartation of boldness. I have a big capital B on boldness. This is not something you derive because one day you decide, I'm going to be bold. No, it isn't a psychological flip in your brain. This is a humbling before the living God to say, God, I don't have capital B boldness. And as a result, I will fail in the day of testing. When it comes to a spiritual test, you will fail unless you receive a capital B version of boldness which, by the way, has been made available for you to freely access because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So Acts 4, 29 through 31. 
Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So Peter and John have just been beaten up pretty bad. You see, they've been told not to speak in the name of Jesus. They've been given a very strict requirement of how they are to live. The social code is in place. And the reprisals have been mentioned. The fact that they will be outcasts socially has been clarified. All the eerie mechanics of silence have been placed in proper order for Peter and John. And yet Peter and John know that they must speak. They know that it is better to obey God than man. And they come back to the church, and this church is meeting in some room, and they share what has happened, and there's a certain amount of vulnerability that the church is feeling, sort of like we feel. And they're feeling weak, and we're like, could the early church actually feel weak? Uh Uh-huh. You see, they're still human. Yes, they have the amazing impartation of the Holy Spirit. They have the amazing witness of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, like personal witness to this. And yet they're like us. And they're feeling vulnerable, like, God, can I stand for you? I don't want to fail. I want to be strong. And so this is what they pray. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. You need to imagine a capital B on that boldness, because that's different boldness. That's boldness that came from above. It wasn't derived from pockets where you know, we reach into our heart going, I can pay for this. I have saved up for a long time and now I have the resource to pay for this grand test that's coming my way. Nope, you don't have what it takes. So the sooner that we come to the end of ourselves and acknowledge, okay, God, <laughs> I, I need help. I need what only you can give. I need that boldness. Shake this room and fill it with your Holy Spirit, that I too, like the early apostles, like the early church, would move forward with boldness to speak the truth in an hour when speaking the truth will cost you everything. It's 1942. In 1942, it's open season on the Jews and anyone who would dare attempt to help them. So what I want to do is I want to transport back to 1942 the best we can. And I want us just to be Germans in 1942, German Christians. And I want us to recognize what do we need. Do we need to just flee Germany? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I almost put the quote in, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in America in around 1938, right before the war was going to start. And he recognized when he got over there, He said, after careful scrutiny of what's going on in Germany and seeing where it's headed, I recognize that I need to go back to my homeland and I need to suffer with the church in and through this time so I have a voice when it's over. If I try and escape it now, I will have no voice in its reconstruction. So he is going to go back to Germany. If you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's going to be hung, what was it, 21 days, April 9th, 1945, before Hitler is going to be deposed I mean, it's like, oh, and yet his choice is noble, and all of us esteem it. Looking back, we're like, wow, 
Who would deliberately choose to go into the difficulty? Well, Christians have done that throughout the centuries. What do you think missions is? Is it a deliberate choice to go into the darkness to shine a light? So as a church, are we prepared for 1942? If you do imagine that we're in 1933 right now, and we see a movement against the body of Christ in our country, we see a movement against the truth, we see the spreading of lawlessness in our culture, very similar. Are we ready and are we being prepared to stand as Christians in this hour? So we're back in time, guys, and yet what's ahead is not good. It's not easy, but we are light bearers. Are we prepared with the spirit of boldness for such an hour as this? Father, we acknowledge that we need something from above. And we ask that you would supply it. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. And may the spirit of boldness, capital B, fill us. Lord, we must have something more than what we have. We will fail in our own strength. We acknowledge that. But we cannot but help but succeed if the living God is allowed to have us, to use us, and to work through us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.